Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices, where I'm joined by my friend and my colleague, Dr. Sarah Moore. Uh, Sarah is a medical oncologist in the same center that I'm at, at the the, uh, Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center, and uh, she treats uh, lung cancer here, and she's also on faculty at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Moore, to Lung Cancer Voices. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm uh, very happy to be here. The reason that I invited Dr. Moore to be on this podcast is we're going to be talking about a, a, a pretty big topic, which is medical assistance in dying. And this is a sensitive topic. It is, I think, self-evidently one that can bring a lot of emotion and stress. Sarah is an expert in the medical assistance in dying process, particularly as it pertains to people with cancer. We are are not going to get into a discussion of the rights or wrongs of medical assistance in dying or the, the ethics of whether people believe this should be legal or not in Canada. The reality is it is legal in Canada, as it is in a number of Uh, countries and jurisdictions around the world. And we're really going to be uh, talking about more practical issues around MAID or medical assistance in dying. We do acknowledge, of course, people hold pretty strong opinions sometimes about this. And so, you know, we've acknowledged that, but for the purposes of this, we're really going to be talking about a more pragmatic approach and, and description of things. So with that as the as the sort of precursor, Sarah, maybe you could just start off by by explaining, uh, you know, what is made, and and what's the situation in Canada uh, for made. Yeah. So medical assistance in dying is is sort of similar to what it sounds. It's the process by which a medical practitioner, either a physician or a nurse practitioner, uh, helps somebody actually end their own life. And that's done for sort of medical purposes. Um, I think similar words other people have heard of in other jurisdictions might be things like euthanasia or assisted suicide or voluntary assisted dying. Those are all sort of related terms that describe the same concept. And as it comes to made in Canada, this was legalized in 2016, and it, it was the result of a case that actually went up to us, went up to the Supreme Court, of a patient's family and some some other patients who argued that it was, you know, the ban of unassisted suicide was not constitutional, and and this eventually led to us striking down the ban on assisted suicide and leading to the legalization of medical assistance in dying or made in 2016. Okay, maybe just just out of interest, would you, what are some other places in the world where MAID is available? Yeah, or, so it, it sort of varies by jurisdiction around the world. I think some of the sort of the pivotal countries or the countries where we've learned a lot about assisted dying or euthanasia have been, you know, Switzerland. 
Switzerland actually never had a ban against assisted suicide. So assisted suicide has always been legal in Switzerland. Countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg are all countries that much before Canada had a, a legal process for, for assisted dying of some sort. Right. And then our neighbors to the south in the states, it's it's state dependent. So there are some states that have passed sort of voluntary assisted dying laws, others where there's still a, a ban. So there's not sort of a universal uh, U.S. approach to assisted dying. Okay. And so now let's re restrict our conversation to, to Canada. Who is eligible for a medical assisted death? Yeah, so... To be eligible for MAID, you sort of have to meet specific criteria that are outlined really in our criminal code. And some of them are fairly straightforward. Uh, you know, the first is it has to be a voluntary request. So a patient has to be making that request on their own without influence from someone else. They have to right now be an adult patient, and that's somebody who's more than 18 years of age. They have to be capable of making their own healthcare decisions. And that's something we can sort of talk in a bit more detail about later is the need for capacity during the made assessment process. They have to be eligible for publicly funded healthcare services in Canada. So that criteria kind of prevents against what we would call sort of made tourism, like people coming to Canada simply for an assisted death. They see that happen in Switzerland. And then finally, most importantly, it's patients have to be diagnosed with what's called a grievous and irremediable medical condition. And they define that as some sort of a condition that causes a serious and incurable illness, that causes a state of decline in your capability, and that causes you suffering that's intolerable to you as the individual. And you have to be kind of aware of what treatments are available. It doesn't mean you're mandated to take any of those treatments, but you have to at least understand what would be there for you. So those are sort of the basic criteria for made in Canada. When you said that that last bit, you have to be aware of what treatments are available. You, you mean by that alternative treatments to, to MAID? What, yes, what are the yeah. options? Right. Yeah, yeah. So as part of that, you know, making an informed decision, you have to really understand what the alternatives are. And again, there's never a, a mandate that you must take those alternatives. So it remains up to the patient to decide what they think is an acceptable treatment for them or what defines intolerable suffering. It's all based on the patient's own experience. So it's not something that we say, you know, this is what suffering means to you. It's something that you as the patient decide. Okay. And so bringing it to the audience that listens to lung cancer voices, so lung cancer patients and families. So somebody with maybe a stage one or a stage two lung cancer, which is curable, would not be eligible, presumably. It would have to be somebody who's not able or willing to receive a curative intent treatment. So it's it's those people we would consider in the palliative. Yeah, I think for the most yeah part, it's it's patients who who are going to meet those criteria are the ones who have more advanced lung cancer. That being said, certainly if a patient has a stage one or a stage two lung cancer and they had heard about the treatment options but didn't want to have those treatments, then potentially you take someone who's in a curative or early stage situation and they would then be sort of considered more of an advanced disease. So it, it does, you can have patients with earlier stage lung cancers go through the assessment process sort of depending on those individual circumstances. Okay, okay. presumably that's less common. I would say, yeah, much less common, yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's say somebody is, is interested, has advanced lung cancer and wants to pursue 
made or at least find out more about it can they self-refer to a, a made program do they need a referral from a physician so it depends a little bit on where you're located. So most health centers across the country or health jurisdictions across Canada will have some form of made coordination service. And that's a service, many of them are self-referral, some require a referral where patients can go and get information about MAID and also get connected to potential MAID assessors and providers, uh, which is something I think we'll get into further during that formal assessment process. I think for the first step for patients, you know, because it's different all across the country, is to ask one of your providers about it. You know, if it's your family doctor, if it's your oncologist, you know, somebody involved in your care about what the process looks like in the area that you live. And that's a good way to kind of start that conversation and get some information. Okay. And you mentioned two words there. You mentioned a maid assessor and a maid provider. So maybe we'll just define those now. Who, who, isn't, what's the, who are they and what's the difference? Yeah, so as part of the MAID assessment process, you know, we outline the eligibility criteria, uh, but there's also what that looks like logistically. You know, how do you go from eligible to actually receiving or being approved for an assisted death? So in, in Canada, the, the way the law works is that you have to have two independent providers and in the or independent practitioners, which can either be a doctor or a nurse practitioner perform a formal assessment and determine that you meet the eligibility criteria that we discuss. So, um, and, so by that, like you have capacity to make the decision. It's yes. your decision, not your family members, that you have an irremediable condition, that you know what the alternatives are, those points. Those sort of points. Yes, absolutely. So they would have sort of a consult where they'd go through all of those points. An assessor is somebody who just performs the assessment process. So there's specific forms they would have to fill out saying you meet the criteria. The second person who does the assessment generally is also the person who will eventually go on to provide the made procedure. So that's sort of the difference there. Okay. Now, Dr. Moore, Sarah, there used to be a, a clause that you'd have the assessment and then you had to have the assessment again a second time after at least, well, I can't remember, was it a 10-day period? And that was meant to sort of safeguard against people making a sort of sudden decision that they that they might regret. Yeah. But, but, that, but that clause is gone now. Is that right? Yeah. So there have been some updates in the law from 2016 until the most recent update was in 2021. And, and Paul, you're correct. When it was first legalized, there was a few criteria. You had to have a death that was what we call reasonably foreseeable, which is not really defined by any specific time frame. And you had to wait sort of 10 days between when you made the formal request and when you actually had the made procedure. So it was considered sort of this mandated reflection period. What they updated in 2021 is that, you know, your, your death no longer has to be reasonably foreseeable. So people with chronic but non-fatal conditions can still have an assisted death through sort of an additional process that has extra safeguards. For patients whose death is reasonably foreseeable, which does tend to apply to most patients who have cancer as their diagnosis, that 10-day reflection period is now waived. So you no longer have to wait 10 days between your request and when you have the made procedure. Okay. And well, now let's get on to the procedure itself. And so that would be that you said the made assessors who do the assessments and the paperwork, and then the made provider is is the 
the healthcare professional who, who performs the made procedure. Could you just maybe stepwise take us through what the procedure looks like, what actually happens? Yeah, so I I'll focus really on the process for the intravenous procedure. In Canada, you actually can have made through two different means. There's an oral route, meaning you get medications that you take to drink or pills that you take. That's not used very commonly just because of some sort of inconsistencies around how well that will work. So the vast majority of assisted deaths in Canada are provided through intravenous medications or medications given through the vein. And from a process standpoint, patients can choose to have the made procedure kind of at their location of choosing. So whether that's in the home, if that's what patients wish, if that's in a hospital while they're admitted, that can be facilitated for patients who want the procedure but maybe don't want it at home for whatever reason. Sites will often have a clinic space where you can come in and have the procedure done there. So there's variabilities kind of in location. More often than not, I think MADE is, is done at home. And patients can choose really as much as they can, the time, the location of their choosing, and you know who they want to be present with them. Because it's an intravenous treatment, a nurse will generally be involved in the team who will make sure that you have an intravenous line that's in place. They usually do one and then an additional backup just to make sure if, in case there's issues with the first one. And then once you're confirmed to be ready uh, to start the procedure, the person who's providing MAID will then start to administer the drugs that will, will ultimately end your life. And the exact recipes can vary a little bit, but in general, the first medication, at least in Ottawa, that's used is a drug called midazolam. Midazolam is a drug that prevents anxiety. So that just kind of helps if people are feeling a bit nervous leading up to the procedure, they're more settled down. The next drug is a drug called propofol. It's a medication used to essentially put people to sleep. So this sort of induces almost a coma state with propofol. And then the final medication is a medication called rocuronium, which essentially stops the breathing. And once you stop the breathing, then eventually the heart will stop. And the whole process really takes a number of minutes at most from the start until when someone passes. Okay. And if people were thinking about this and would want to know, is it painful? Is it, is it, is it stressful? Does it make them feel sick? What's your response to, to that? Yeah, I would say that for the, for the most part, it's not something that's painful. You don't feel symptoms really. It's, it's almost similar to being the pro the initial process actually has quite a lot of overlap with being put to sleep in an operating room. One of the drugs propofol, they say can sometimes burn a little bit when it's injected. So it's usually actually mixed with something sort of a numbing agent so that 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 risk is minimized. Okay. So when people have gone through the, the, the process of leading up to made, they've been able to choose like you say, where they are, who's with them in the room, their family and loved ones. And then it, it's quick, it's painless, it's uh, peaceful. Yes. Right. This is a pretty sobering podcast we're going through, Sarah. Since 2016, how has made, I was going to say how has made made its way onto the Canadian landscape, but that's, I don't think, very good linguistics. But how common is made now among 
as as a, maybe causes of of death in general and and how common is it in in uh, the cancer population or lung cancer population yeah so you know made again legalized in 2016 and and since then we've seen kind of a steady increase in the number of, of cases of made with each passing year. Uh, and the government, the federal government does create a, a made report that reports on regular statistics around, around assisted dying in Canada. The most recent data we have show that assisted deaths make up about 3% of all deaths in the country. And when you look at other places where MAID has been legal for longer, uh, you kind of see the same thing that the MAID rates kind of gradually go up with each year. And then eventually they sort of hit a plateau. And that plateau kind of, again, depends on the country. But I think in, in the Netherlands, it's about 4% or so. So I think we're, we'll probably see in Canada us hit that plateau sometime soon. Okay. And, and of, of people who, who go through MAID, what sort of diagnoses do people have and, and specifically, I guess, how many people have have cancer? Yeah, so by far, you know, we see the majority of patients who have made have cancer as their underlying diagnosis. So it makes up between 60 and 70 percent of all all made cases in Canada. And that's okay. true most places around the world where made is legal as well. OK, now lung cancer, and we've talked about this on previous podcast series, is, you know, the number one cancer in Canada for all the wrong reasons. It, it, it's the most commonly diagnosed cancer and it's by far the most common cause of cancer deaths. Is, is that reflected in, in MAID as well? Uh, it is. So more recently, the government has started to report by cancer type in terms of MAID rates. Uh, and what you see is that I, I believe lung cancer makes up about 20 to 25% of all cancer deaths in Canada. And the same kind of applies to MAID. It's about that same fraction. So we don't see patients with lung cancer having higher rates than we'd expect or lower rates. It seems to match about what we would expect. Okay. So you've taken us through, you know, what is made, uh, the law, the referral process, the, the actual procedure, and some of the statistics. That, I'm just going to ask you to get a bit more sort of personal now. So firstly, what, what what's your personal experience of discussing made with your patients? Yeah, so I, I think made is something that patients bring up to me, not, not uncommonly, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's often that a week will go by and I, I have a patient or two ask me about made. And most of these patients are not patients who are approaching their end of life or who are really thinking about made as a as an immediate option, but it's more patients who are earlier on maybe in their disease course who are trying to understand and kind of grapple with really the, the difficulty of a lung cancer diagnosis. And I think when people are diagnosed with advanced lung cancer, it comes with a lot of fear and a lot of fear about what the end could look like. And I think a lot of people, when they ask about it, are really just looking for reassurance to say, you know, am I gonna be looked after until I die? And if so, what can that look like? And can MAID be a part of that? So I think more often than not, what it's opened up for me with my patients is really a discussion about their suffering, what we can do about it, and to provide them some reassurance that we're here for them no matter what. There's lots of options and that MAID is one of them, but there's ways that, that death either made related or not made related, it doesn't have to equate to suffering. It doesn't have to be painful. You know, we can try to look after people as best as we can. 
Great. And I, I think we'll come on to that in a second. Do people ask you when they're asking about MAID, whether it's covered by the public healthcare system or whether people have to pay privately for this? Yeah, that's a great question. It is something that is publicly funded. So the procedure itself, the drugs included, would all be publicly paid for. Okay. I think that's probably an important point to make, isn't it? Now, that other point you just made there, I think is, is super important, that dying by MAID is, is not the only way to die peacefully and without suffering. And yeah. for, um, I mean, because that almost suggests that pre-2016, or for the, uh, you know, people who don't die of MAID, that everyone's dying in, in, in terrible suffering, which, which we know intuitively, and from our experiences, is not, is not the case. Let's get into your research, Sarah, because you've you've studied, like formally studied, made in cancer patients and particularly lung cancer patients in in Canada or, or and, and in the Ottawa region in particular. What what were you looking at? What were you trying to find out? And what what did you learn? Yeah, so you know, I think as somebody who spends my day job treating patients with lung cancer, was to really try to understand what population of patients with lung cancer choose made as an end-of-life option. And what I found was there was really no data out there to suggest, you know, who these patients are, what types of cancer, lung cancer they had, what kind of treatments they've had. So we really wanted to understand this population a bit better to see, you know, is there something we're missing? Is there something we could do better? So we ended up reviewing the patients who had had lung cancer, who underwent an assisted death kind of in the Ottawa area. Um, or in Eastern Ontario, and then actually looked at the sort of the subtypes of lung cancer they had, whether they'd met an oncologist, what kind of treatments they had been through to help us understand this population. What did you find? Had everyone met an oncologist? Yeah, so the short answer to that is no, right? It is uh, it only about 90% of patients had met an oncologist, either a radiation or a medical oncologist. And I think that number can be a bit frightening, especially as lung cancer treaters, you know, when we see that number. It is important to remember the context, right? I, as a medical oncologist, only meet patients who come through the door of a cancer center. But what I understand is that there are patients who have lung cancer that I'll never meet because either they don't want to meet an oncologist or they'll unfortunately pass away before they've even had the chance. So when we look at broader data of patients with lung cancer as a whole, depending on how you look at it, you know, the majority or there's still a good proportion who have not met a medical oncologist. So our numbers, you know, 80, 90 percent are not far off from the population. Okay. And what about palliative care teams? Have did the people who went through MAID, have they all being able to meet a palliative care doctor? Yeah, so palliative care involvement is a little bit harder to capture from a research standpoint, just because of the structure of how palliative care is delivered. And a lot of it is done more home-based or community-based. Uh, what we've seen in, in other studies of patients with cancer who undergo MAID is that the vast majority of them have had the chance to have palliative care involvement. And even if they haven't, for many of them, palliative care was available to them if they had wanted it. So I don't want to interpret your work for you, but it sounds like, you know, the vast majority of people with lung cancer who went through MAID had met an oncologist or a palliative care physician or both. And so there's not necessarily a huge potential missed opportunity. Or am I putting words in your mouth? Were, were there people you found who went through MAID and as you looked 
at their case, you you thought, oh look, they had a particular, uh, you know, targeted therapy, and our, our audience is very literate in immunotherapy and targeted therapies, and maybe there was a mutation that could have been treated easily that just through a lack of knowledge or didn't you know they missed that was was did you see anything like that yeah so i i agree i think on a on a whole scale really there wasn't a huge gap or a huge difference but i agree with you on this personal or patient to patient level you can see these cases where a patient might have had a very treatable form of lung cancer like some of these lung cancers as you mentioned that are eligible for targeted therapy. And I think as, as people who treat lung cancer and maybe the population who listens to this podcast know a lot about targeted therapy and what that means and what that can look like. But outside the lung cancer world, most people are really unfamiliar with these treatments. And that can apply to, you know, a physician at the Ottawa hospital who doesn't, you know, who works in I don't know, general medicine or something like that, they may not actually have that level of knowledge about what's available. So I do think oncologists, you know, come from a unique place where we really, we've seen all the advances, we've seen how much things have changed and how tolerable treatments can be. And I think it's natural for us to want to make sure that patients have heard about them, at least not that they take them if they don't want them, but that they know that they're there. Yeah, meeting an oncologist does not, does not force you to take a treatment but so yeah because Sarah earlier we were talking about this podcast before we started recording it and you you were talking about a sort of historical expectation when of sort of imminent death almost when someone gets a lung cancer diagnosis the the natural immediate sense and we we see this all the time is people just assume that okay I'm gonna die really quickly and you and I know that with the huge advances in lung cancer in recent years with targeted therapies, with immunotherapy, that we're now seeing people even with stage four lung cancer, I mean, not everyone, but many people now live literally for years and years and years um, with an excellent quality of life, almost normal quality of life for a lot of that. So I, I guess where we're going with this is if you're thinking about made when you get a lung cancer diagnosis or you want to find out about it, it it is worthwhile just pausing and asking the question is is there an alternative that would take me away from this sort of dismal prognosis path yeah i think you know as you said there are so many patients that i meet in clinic even today that come to me thinking this is this is a terminal condition and they're going to die quickly and they're going to feel as bad as they feel today for the rest of their lives. And for some of them, it's just, it's just not true. I had someone who started targeted therapy recently. They were very sick when we started and they came in one day and they just said, like, I feel human again. And it was so wonderful. And that was, you know, that was in a span of weeks. And so you know, we we want that for all our patients. We know we're not there yet. And there's there's obviously, you know, tons of work still to be done in lung cancer, but there's been huge progress. And so I think that's what, what I hope for patients is that, you know, MADE is always an option there, but to know, you know, what else is out there too, because there may be something, you know, relatively straightforward, at least for a time. Okay. 
So, Sarah, we've been talking in this podcast for longer than we normally uh, have these podcasts, but it, it is a really important topic to really to cover thoroughly. But I, I don't have that many more questions for you. But the, the first one is, though, you know, we, we've just you've just talked about targeted therapies and immunotherapies and uh, the ability for lung cancer patients now to live in many cases much, 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 much longer than we ever used to see. And so we don't want people to lose those opportunities by, by rushing towards MAID. However, we also know that not everybody lives for years and years and years with lung cancer and targeted therapies are not the answer for many people and immunotherapy may also not be the answer. When people therefore are not receiving sort of active cancer treatments anymore, and they are approaching the end of their life and made as an option is more imminent, what, what are the other options that they have if they didn't want to end their life by, by made? Yeah, so when, when somebody reaches that phase, very often, you know, we, we talk about it like it, the concept of palliative care. And there are actually physicians who are specially trained in in palliative care who can help look after symptoms uh, that patients have as they're coming toward the end of their life. Now, some family physicians will do really great palliative care, but there's also specialists involved. And so there's there's a lot that can be done for kind of pain or other symptom management as as someone is approaching the end of life. I find patients often ask me about, you know, settings of of death and where they can be at the end of their life. Um, And I think, you know, home is a goal for many patients. And that is something that can be supported often by visiting palliative care physicians, home care nursing, family members, caregivers uh, can support patients to die at home. It's not possible for everyone though. You know, some patients will end up dying in a hospital. That's often not the ideal, but that, you know, is a possible location for some patients. And then there's something called a hospice, which I don't know if is familiar to all your listeners, but a hospice is essentially a special setting or institution where patients can go when they're really approaching the last few weeks of life. And the goal at hospice is really to relieve symptoms and to enable people to have the quality of life that they, you know, the best quality of life they can for whatever time it is they have left. Right. And I think we should mention that the, the palliative care, hospice care, is really designed in a very holistic way. So it's not just pain control. Pain control might be important and pain is often things that the symptom people are most worried about. But actually the reality is that most people approaching end of life with lung cancer, pain is not the dominant uh, issue. It's more fatigue and sleepiness, weakness. But the hospice and palliative care are meant to be holistic. So it's not just symptoms, but it's it's emotional, spiritual, psychological, um, social, family bereavement, as well as as well as uh, symptoms. Absolutely, um, and I, and I think I, I should make it also clear that palliative care is not something that people just need when they're approaching the the last bit of their life. I kind of use that term because I think it's often used in the public sphere to mean someone's getting closer to the end of their life. But palliative care really is a specialty involved in promoting quality of life for anyone with a significant illness. So, you know, for patients with lung cancer, even if they're on treatment, there's certainly benefits of having palliative care providers, you know, helping them with that really holistic quality of life approach. Yeah. I'm glad you said that, Sarah, because 
a palliative mindset is, is one that really we have throughout a trajectory of a serious illness. Uh, so alongside anti-cancer treatments, uh, it's the approach to try and maximize people's quality of life. And we're probably better to frame what we've been talking about as end of life care. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Towards, towards the end of life. Well, I think we'd probably better wrap up there. We've been talking for, 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 for quite a while, but Sarah, uh, uh, Dr. Sarah Moore, you, you have spoken to, to me with knowledge and compassion and clarity in how you've, you've described, made, and I can't tell you how thankful I am that you've um, shared your expertise on the, on the pod. Well, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. So thank you so much for having me. And for those of you who who are listening to this, obviously this is a you know can be a very poignant topic. It can be very personal. And if this has brought some issues to the fore for you uh, around maid or end of life care, and you have more questions, please do reach out to your healthcare team, your oncologist or palliative care physician or family doctor or nurse practitioner. Um, you can look to the lungcancercanada.ca website uh, as well for support, or you can uh, call in to the Lung Cancer Canada office. Thank you again, uh, Sarah, and um, please everyone tune in for the next Lung Cancer Voices podcast. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like, and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.